This is a special feature produced for download. Due to copyright restrictions with music, we've edited it to make downloading the content possible. Tim Winton is a prolific and celebrated writer whose work spans across 28 books. His readership crosses generations. Some would call him a national treasure, and they wouldn't be wrong. It's not often a published author has a career expanding more than four decades. And a writer picking up no less than four Miles Franklin Awards is just unheard of. The Boy Behind the Curtain is Tim Winton's latest release. It's a collection of short stories, very much autobiographical. And in this, he delves into core beliefs and ideologies. Tim joined me earlier to unpack some of his ideas. Hi, Tim. Welcome to the program. Oh, thanks for having me. Time and time again, you bring readers new stories, great reads. Where do you start? What what sows a seed in your mind where you think that that could be something? Oh, I don't know. I wish I knew. Um, things just grow on me, you know. Mm. This book probably took a long time to um, to develop. I've been writing essays on the side all these decades, mm. um, as well as the fiction. But um, uh, I guess eventually, I realised I had a, a quite a quite a few of them and. There were some that lent against one another and seemed to inform each other and naturally seemed to fit. The process is partly about being able to look over my shoulder. Having done this gig for, you know, I'm in my fourth decade, I can hardly believe it, you know, of uh, of being a writer and having started so young, you mm. know, I was publishing and writing uh, in my teens. Uh, I got married really young. Uh, my wife was 20, I was 21. Yeah. And it felt like we had babies about eight minutes after that um, <laughs> and I was writing the whole time so in my and, and also you know it was a it was a dud gig financially so, risky business yeah I mean I used to you know work for two years and publishers would say great we love this um here's a thousand bucks when you when you're embarking on a on a on a vocation like this you you more or less have to fess up to the idea that you're um you know you've taken a vow of poverty you know I, I went hard in order to keep the wolf from the door all those years wrote 10 books in my 20s, slowed down slightly in my 30s, but um, I guess it was just pounding along going forward and not having the chance to look back much. And then get to my age, um, in my 50s, and you know my kids have grown up and left and having their own kids, and I guess I had the opportunity and the space to look back a little bit and think, well, wow, it's a lot of, um, a lot of living and uh, a lot of work and a lot of behaviour. How do I make sense of that? And these essays sort of come from that you know, thing of just being able to look back and think, where does this stuff all join up? You know, How do I account for these patterns in, in my life and my behaviour? And then certain patterns you know, in, in, the, in the books. You mentioned four decades of, of writing, which is incredible. You don't hear of authors who have been that lucky, do you? No, all that stupid and determined. You know, <laughs> kind of, eventually, people kind of get the message the cosmos is sending them. You know, don't bother, buddy. And it used to irritate me when I was a when I was a young writer. I'd go to these peculiar festivals and and I'd be introduced as uh, uh, a wunderkind, you know, mm. or a, an enfant terrible, mm. as if there wasn't an English word for mm. what they already meant. You know, which was a bit of a weirdo or a freak. You know, and it used to really annoy me that that people would see me as somehow um, a freak because I was too young to be doing the kinds of things that I was doing. But really now that I'm old enough to look back, I think, well, they were right. Um, and I was a 
bit of a freak. Quite normal to, to you know, get to about 38 and think, oh, I wouldn't mind writing a novel, or I think I'm ready to write my novel now, or 40 or 45. I'd written 10 before I'd even cracked 30. And that is that is weird, that's not normal. I declared to anyone who'd listen at the age of 10 that I was going to be a writer, and I'd never even met a writer until 1979, <laughs> 19 years, you know, when I was 19 years old. And, um, so I don't know how, I, I can't really explain that part of my life as to, I was a pretty self-possessed um, young person. I didn't, uh, I, I, you know, I, I, I didn't know much, but I knew what I was and who I was. And that mm. meant that I was a bit stubborn. Um, and um, a certain level of stubbornness is handy for the artist because um, it's, it's about endurance and pushing through. Do you see that with your, your kids? Oh, I just think it's stubbornness without cause, you know. I just, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, they, they, I do see, um, I do see streams of uh, self-possession, streams of um, determination. Mm. But I think the weird thing is that um, I don't know if it's just about my kids or, or, or um, younger people, or the way life's changed as our cultures got more um, wealthy. Mm. Um, people are paralysed by. An excess of choice. I think it's a kind of a strange first world problem, but it's but it's there, and and it's even worse if you're good at more than one thing. You know, I knew a lot mm. of people who were who were you know pretty good at lots of lots of things. They, had, they, were, they were smart and skilled up. Subsequently, they could you know, often just not make a decision about mm. which direction they wanted to go in because um, they were just you know sport for choice. For me. Um, only it's a horrible one, life. Isn't I only it? only had one idea, and I'm stuck with that. Yeah. But you know the the, the range of options was seemed um, seemed narrower when I was younger, and mm. in a way, I mean, I, that's a disadvantage. But I saw it as a I see it now as a bit of a mercy as well. Right now, it's 2016. If you were trying to do something like that today. It'd be very different, wouldn't it? Yeah, and 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 I'm kind of conscious of that, you know. Um, I mean, one of the big differences when I was um, a young person was that, particularly, you know, from the working class, growing up in Carinup when it was, you know, it was pretty pretty modest work, uh, working class state housing suburb. We got to go to school for nothing. Yeah, you know, it, was, it was an era of high taxation. Yeah, people got people were used to paying. Uh, what's now considered a high rate of tax, but they got a high return for their tax. Mm. Schools were fully funded, hospitals fully funded, we had full employment. And that meant, you know, if you grew up um, and you came of age after 1972, I went to uni for nothing. Mm. cost 80 bucks to join the student union, that was it. So, so you know, in terms of moments of liberation, I think we've closed things down a lot since then. You know, if now you'd come out of university as a, a debtor, yeah, you know, you're in debt for mm. sometimes for the rest of your life, depending um, the uni you go to and the degree that you're um, that you've chosen, and that's different. There's more publishing opportunity. There's more publishing. People are more choosing to be a writer. Less of a weird choice now than it mm. was when I was a kid. But um, again, there's more competition, and and everybody's everybody's you know desperately paying off their debt as well as trying to get on with their life you know it's you know it's a it's a great privilege it doesn't matter what you're doing if if there's something that you you've found in your life um that gives you pleasure and stimulates your brain um and you've got colleagues who you who you you like uh, and respect and that's a great gift because mm. so many people you know that's not their life the boy behind the curtain is uh, very different from your past work, as you mentioned. It's it's non-fiction and it's a series of essays about your your life. 
What was it like as someone who's largely written fiction to then have to write non-fiction? Yeah, it's definitely, um, it's, uh, you know, in, in trade terms, it's a different set of tools. It's a different, yeah. you know, it's a different construction, different creature, really. And so it was much harder. And you have a different level of responsibility. When you're a novelist, you, your only responsibility is to the work itself, you know, that it um, holds together as, a, as an organic whole. And so the only one responsibility is aesthetic. Uh, whereas if you're writing a memoir or if you're a journalist or if uh, you, you know, you're writing any non-fiction, you, you, your responsibility is to tell the truth. You have to tell the truth according to, a, you know, a, as you know it, but be aware that, you know, you have a responsibility not to hurt hurt those around you. What did your family say when you told them that you were you were going to publish something non-fiction about your own life and your family? Uh, yeah, well, I, I gave everyone fair warning, I think. I, it was, we... we, we um, I, certainly with my, my parents, we talked about it a lot because my parents figure quite a bit in, in this book. Yeah. And um, there's places I haven't gone in the book and that's, you know, there are various reasons for that. Some stories aren't mine to tell. It's been fun in a way because it sort of provoked a kind of um, new round of conversation in the family. Mm. I've had plenty of phone calls and we've had a few laughs. And m- Mum and Dad have... Uh, yeah, we've had conversations. They've been reading, reading it to each other in bed, and hmm. getting the giggles. And um, yeah, it's 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 been a nice thing. And my, and my brothers and sister had been, you know, we've been talking about. Oh, do you, you know, really? I, I don't remember that. Or um, I cannot believe you remembered that. You know, <laughs> so, so far so good. You know, we haven't. There's no bushfires at home anyway. Oh well, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, you mentioned your mum and dad, and they do they do feature uh, largely in here. In fact, you dedicate uh, this this book to them. Tell us a little bit about Beverly and John. And oh, well, dad was um, brought up in Margaret River, and uh, was one of seven kids. And mum mm. came from Geraldton. She was uh, one of three, both from very modest backgrounds. Mum was taken out of school before the age of sixteen. Mm. Dad as well. So they, they never finished high school. I guess mum's parents just said, well, you know, we can't afford to keep you at school. You need to get a job. Dad got home from school one day and his mum said, well, that was your last day of school. You start Monday as a, uh, in your apprenticeship mm. and, and you're going to be a cabinet maker. And he said, what's that? He said he spent two weeks standing at the bench crying. So there, in that sense, uh, there was a kind of motivating impulse from mum and dad, I think, um, to give their kids what they hadn't had the opportunity to have um, as young people. And to surround us, you know, in a, in a, with love and nurture to push us forward. So I think all of, all of us, um, and there's four of us, you know, I think we, we felt that kind of, um, we sort of surfed the momentum that mum and dad provided us. You know, I think we were, we were very lucky to have, um, to have had that kind of um, impetus from our parents who were trying to lift us up. And, mm. and we were trained from an early age to... Um, to strive and to to not just um, sit on our laurels, to not just accept the status quo, to not just phone it in. And that's you know, people have been asking me, how do you you know how do you account for having grown up in a in a you know a, a modest working class home and then end up a kind of bourgeois from having <laughs> written stories all your life? It's a pretty weird trajectory, you know. I just put it down to taxation. I grew up at a time when we believed in the culture and we mm. believed that it was back when we were a community, not just an economy. And do you think that's what we are now, just oh, an no, economy? D- oh, well, I think that's the, that's what we've been sold. Um, mm. You know, it's a, this experiment is now a generation old. 
I think what Bob Ellis used to call sadomonetarism, you know, where you pretty much define things by their monetary value. And Margaret Thatcher said, um, you know, there's no such thing as society. And to some degree, politicians on the left and the right have more or less um, ingested that and internalised it, you know. So sadly, I think, you know, we have become um, economised, marketised. I think that brings us quite nicely into the topic of ideologies and, and, and values and how that comes into into your work as a, as a novelist. It certainly uh, appears and certainly does in this book too. Is that a hard, a hard thing, having your, your morals and your values, your view on life on paper for everybody to read? Oh, no. There's one way to find out what you think is by writing it down, mm. you know, um, what you think and what you adhere to or what you think you think um, changes over life and and, d- and it d- depends on the, on the conditions of your life. But, yeah, I'm, I guess I'm a product of taxation and Sunday school yeah. in that sense. Um, you know, where we, um, where we we were trained to expect something of ourselves and we were aspired, not just, you know, in material sense, we were, you know, ethically uh, expected to step up you know to to be larger than what we thought we were to be to find ways of um of enlarging the world around us Mm. adding to the serving the world around us that was that was really big and and important bit weird if you actually go into a a career where there's no utilitarian value to to art i don't really care about that i mean i think i think artists enlarge our minds and add add you know some richness to 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 life and one thing i have learnt over all these decades is that the most fun fundamental element to civilization is imagination yeah if you can't imagine um what someone else is going through if you can't imagine what their what their life is like um you can do anything to them mm. you know that, that's you know that's where objectification comes in if you can if people cease to be subjects and they become objects, then they, you can, they're just instruments. You know, there's things that you can do anything to. You can make someone, you know, you can, you can make your fellow human a stranger or an other with a capital O, then they're just an object. And, um, you know, those cultures and those moments in, in politics when people have been able to render each other as objects, you know, it's only... You can, only, mm. you can only kill six million people in the gas chambers um, if you take away their humanity and you take their faces off them. Where do you think that started for Australia? Do you think that has started for Australia? Uh, I think See, we, my we, mind immediately jumps to, to the Tampa crisis. Mm. Yeah, I think um, no, I think it's gone. It's gone back longer. I think we've, in terms of turning in people into objects, you know, that's a that's a universal human problem where we mm. just we 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 let our imaginations harden and and die and um and sadly everyone's a bit tribal everyone's a bit narrow um and part of our you know part of the glories of civilization is where we overcome that sort of narrowness you know and the, 
Australia, you know, Australia's an island and we, mm. and we act and feel like islanders. You get a little anxious about, you know, people, you know, if you're an islander, you, you know, mm. when people hit the beach, it does do something to you. Um, but I think we had over, you know, we had overcome that. We had become leaders in, um, you know, the things that make you proud about being Australian was that we lifted up the weak, that we looked after the poor, you know, that, that Jack was as good as his master. But yeah, you're right. Tampa was a was a point where we somehow fell back to a fearful part of ourselves. It's particularly in the '70s when I was a kid. There was a new confidence about being Australia mm. and about being in the world. And and people travelled, and you were proud to, to be an Australian, and and also happy um, to be an Australian, especially if you're in Europe. Um, I knew this from first-hand experience. Once people found out that you were not American, they loved you. you know? <laughs> um, but Australia was well known for its compassion. I mean, I was in Melbourne um, uh, last week and I went past a statue erected to those who brought about the eight-hour day, mm. you know, mm. in the 19th century, if you don't mind, mm. you know, um, women getting the vote, you know, mm. just, we were leaders, you know, and, and in, the, in the, you know, the current terminology, you know, we were lifters and not leaners, um, mm. and leaders and not followers, Somehow around that period, once we got frightened of uh, poor strangers shivering and terrified in, in, in boats, um, we went back to being followers and uh, leaners and, and fearful people. So I think, you know, my hope is that we we sort of, um, as we've done in the past, we've, we'd go back to overcoming our fear of strangers, our, our our fear of strangeness, our fear of the others. We all hope that our work makes uh, a difference of sorts, or generally we would, um, that it perhaps changes the world even just a little bit for, for a positive uh, or, or pushes it in a different tra- mm. trajectory to what it is. Is that what you hope you do through your writing? Is that what you hope you did through this book? Um yeah, I don't know. Maybe that in slightly ennobles um, my, my my efforts somewhat. I mean, I'm just following my mm. rather large nose, um, you know, week to week, month to month, year to year in in the work. You know, I don't think you know, I don't think the writer has to has to um, f- you know feel the weight of having to change the culture. Mm. Um, but you want to you want to keep culture alive, and you want to keep people's imaginations alive, and therefore their capacity to live a moral life. You can't live a moral life uh, unless you can imagine, unless you're an imaginative, you know, and, and you can't you can't be a healthy culture unless you're exercising your imagination for the common good. Um, yeah, I would I would like to think that there was some small use, I guess, though, having having said all that, you know, mm. that um, that life was a little more bearable or a little richer or a little more interesting as a result of um, my 28 or whatever books. But maybe I'm kidding myself, you know. Um, <laughs> it's not going to stop me doing it. No. The chapter called Sea Change, uh, in that you say, the places most precious to me are those where the desert meets the sea. Now, location has always been uh, a part of your, your work. How important are places to you? Oh, vital. As we get more and more abstract in the way that we live, you know, where virtual reality seems to be claiming more of mm. our attention um, than organic reality, and we live more and more of our lives in our heads, actual places are very important. 
And I think it's also worth reminding ourselves constantly that these are the terms of trade under which we exist. This is the bottom line, the physical world, the water, the air, the soil, that they're the fundamentals. And if we don't pay attention to them, I think we diminish ourselves as humans. And if we don't pay proper respect to those three things, soil, air and water, then we put at risk our own future as a species. Blueback was one of your novels that I grew up with. Like like you said, you've got different generations of different readers. Um, what does it take to save a precious I can sit place? you on my knee and we can read it. Yeah, like yeah, let's, can... let's do that, yeah. Um, but you, there are so many beautiful places and, and places being such an important thing to you that are at risk. You've worked incredibly hard over many different years, over many different causes. What does it take to save a precious place today, do you think? Well, it's um, yeah, it's a it's a pretty pertinent question given you know what's happening, you know, in the Great Barrier Reef, uh, just dying before our eyes. Um, mm. um, you know, the climate creeping up on us despite you know us putting our heads in the sand, um, and you know places even in in Perth that are that are imperiled by um, uh, government decisions and, and agencies um what does it take uh it just takes some um determined weirdo to to talk to another determined weirdo and you know it, you just you need a bit of grit mm. to produce the oyster and mm. um a bit of uh, 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 you need somebody you need group a group of people to um appeal to the angels the better angels in people to to remind people that um, we are a community and not um, an eco- merely an economy. Um, yeah, I mean, my experience has just been ordinary people finding each other and calling out to each other and um, gathering people uh, to them and giving giving them clean information. Mm. Um, so much of the information that we we have to uh, um, somehow process in making decisions about. Uh, saving or destroying places, much of that information is commercially based and commercially generated. So getting pure, clean um, information to people is very important. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a mysterious process, but it has to start with somebody thinking, damn it, um, I, I have to do this. Mm. I can't. And for some of us, it was about, you know, whether it was Ningaloo or is it, whether it was about um, establishing you know, um, proper suite of marine parks uh, around Australia. It was about thinking, you know, what are my grandkids going to say to me mm. you know, in the future when they inherit something, you know, that's impoverished, which is a shadow of what I'd known as a kid. You know, eventually they're going to say, you know, Granddad, what did you do in, you know, in, 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 in the war on the environment or the war for the environment? And... The prospect of saying, "Well, I thought all the right things, but I didn't do anything," um, was a bit chilling. And you just think, "Well, even if we're just doing that out of vanity for the sake of telling our kids yeah. that we had a crack, um, um, it's, it's fine to think all the right things. In the end, you've got to pull your finger out and um, and do something. And it's usually a little bit more complicated than clicking the right petition button." You dedicate a. a chapter of this book to uh, a woman by the name of Elizabeth Jolly. Can you tell me a little bit about the impact that she made on you? Yeah, uh, Elizabeth was, the, I think, the first writer I ever met, you know, mm. after, as I said, 
having declared to anybody who'd listen at the age of ten that I was that I was going to be a writer. Mm. Um, she was very she was a, a wonderful a wonderful writer and a wonderful lady. Um, she published her first book uh, at the age I am now. She was mm. in her mid fifties, so she'd been trying all her life. Um, and when I was a student at Curtin, uh, which was then called Wait, yeah, hurry up and she she taught me creative writing uh, when I was doing the, uh, the BA there, mm. and she was great. I remember her, her Indian hippie dress and uh, her um, hippie sandals and her granny glasses um, that not even Janis Joplin would wear, <laughs> and her <laughs> windswept English tees, um, and. Uh, she was so she was all wrong for me. I can tell you. Yeah, you know, I was. I was, yeah. I was nineteen, and you know, punk was happening, and um, you know, half the class had lime green hair and trench coats, and in the summer, and you know, so, <laughs> oh, so you know, for the first uh, the first lesson I remember in the first church, she brought in a little real, uh, not real to real, a cassette player, and and put on. Um, Schubert, and it was supposed to inspire us, you know. Yeah. And then she thought, oh, they're not, they're not, they're not buying this. So then she said, oh, I better go modern. So it was Neil Diamond, you know, which was even worse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it was so this gener- enormous generational gulf, you know. She was an English woman, English migrant, very posh accent, very cultured lady, and she was teaching these oiks from the suburbs at, yeah. at, at White. And um, somehow we crossed the we crossed the valley to meet one another and. And we got on really well, and um, she was, yeah, I think she was a, it it was lucky to find her. I mean, she wasn't the best teacher of creative writing in the world, but she was a person who could respect someone else's efforts, you know, and Mm. that's what I learnt, that um, whatever crap you, you, you tried your heart out on and showed her, she would treat it as if... It was real work, you know. You didn't deserve to be treated that mm. with that respect because um, we were young idiots, you know. But she was really decent and 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 kind and thoughtful, and she took an interest. and And in a way, I mean, you know, she only taught me really for about a year, but uh, not assuming that uh, you had nothing in common with someone just because they looked different to you and were generationally or culturally different. You know, there was mm. a sort of decency there that. I respect uh, in her memory. We're going to have to leave it there. Tim, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, pleasure. Thank you, mate.